Hello and welcome to On Geopolitics, the podcast that looks at geopolitics and historical context with myself, Ali Ansari, and my colleague, Suzanne Rain. Today, it gives us great pleasure to welcome Professor Mike Hume, who is Professor of Human Geography at the Department of Geography in the University of Cambridge and a Fellow of Pembroke College. He is the founding director of the Tyndall Centre, was on the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change between 1996 and 2003, and even more important, has just brought out a book entitled Climate Change Isn't Everything. Welcome, Mike. We're looking forward to our conversation on the geopolitics of climate change. Thank you very much. Thank you for the invitation. So interesting. I mean, really quite opportunely today, on the day that we're doing the podcast, obviously not the day that it's going to be broadcast, just for those people who might be considering, you've had an op-ed in The Times on this issue, obviously an, an abbreviation, an abridgment of your argument. But why don't you tell us and the listeners really, you know, what is your hypothesis? What are you arguing? Well, the essence of the column today in The Times and also the book is, in a nutshell, we've got a problem with climate change, not actually the physical impacts and challenges and risks and dangers that a changing climate imposes on the world. But I think the problem we've got with climate change is how we think about it and how we talk about it. And a simple way of trying to capture the problem as I see it is that I talk about this, uh, what I use, an ideology of climatism. That this desire, this imperative, this belief, this insistence that the only thing that matters in public policy or in the geopolitics of the world is to stop climate change and everything else has to take second place or third or fourth or fifth place. Uh, and that's the ideology of climatism uh, that I talk about. And to me, this is concerning, it's worrying, um, because it leads to all sorts of um, distorted thinking, let's put it that way. So that's a really brief summary of the position. And obviously it comes, Mike, from the basis of decades of your own professional research into climate change. So you're, you're not coming at this from a perspective of somebody who doesn't believe it's happening. No, I think no. what, what you're saying is that our approach to dealing with it needs recalibrating. And you described it as being divided unhelpfully, essentially, into those who only ever talked about apocalypse and those who were the deniers. And what that mm. meant that it, there wasn't a space in the middle where we considered actually what the best way to address the problem was. Have I characterised that correctly? Yeah, I think that's an easy way to, to try to capture the, the problem here is that space in the middle, if we call it that. Particularly, I would say, in the last four or five years. I mean, I've been studying climate change ever since I was a student 40 years ago. Um, you know, So I've not only followed the twists and the turns of the science and the politics of this, but I've actually contributed to it, both the science and the policy. But over the last few years in particular, I think, that there's been this hyper-rhetoric around stopping climate change that I think is unhelpful. And it's sort of quite well symbolized by this idea of the ticking climate clock. So I'm not sure if people have, have seen these or, or come across them on the internet. Yeah, there's one. Isn't there one in America or something? That... There's a big one in Union Square, um, you know, way up in the air on on one of the tall buildings there, um, ticking down. And that particular clock is actually ticking down to the 22nd of July, 2029. So it's just under six years away. <laughs> and it, it, it's there. It's incessant. It's, it's second by second, minute by minute, hour by hour. We have only got six more years in order to prevent climate chaos and the world falling to pieces. There are many other versions of this. And, and actually, the, the, the very genre 
of a ticking clock goes back to, oh, it goes back into the 2000s. Probably, I think the first one that was created was about 2006. And that gave us 10 more years. Well, 10 more years, that was seven years ago. So we've already passed the point of no return. And, and this is one of the problems with ticking clocks and, and cliff edges and deadlines, uh, after which it is too late, is that those deadlines will pass. And once that deadline has passed, what then do you do? Do you reset the clock and you give us another five years or 10 years? And this has all been, I think, brought into the fore in the last few years. Uh, some people talk about this as the, uh, the, the rhetoric of doomism, that we're all doomed. And, and particularly, and, and this is partly why I wrote the book in the first place, was the impact of this on our psychology is not great, particularly amongst young people. Uh, and I think also, well, just, uh, I mean, maybe we can unpack this a little. This, the, the danger of this uh, on psychological grounds, I think, concerns me. And also the danger on political grounds. There are two dimensions to this, I think, the politics and the, the psychology. And neither, I think, are good. It's a, I mean, what I was going to say is a sort of modern or a contemporary form of millenarianism. Mm. I mean, in the sense of what we're witnessing. Yeah. And the... Uh, I mean, to summarize the way I, you know, what you're saying is that basically the debate has become so polarized that rational thinking has been crowded out effectively. I mean, is that, you know, that we've gone from one, one, you know, two extremes battling out and those with a sort of a, you know, the, the ability in a sense to have a rational discussion about how we tackle this, which is obviously a very real threat, but it, the way it's being portrayed mm. precludes <laughs> or sort of crowds out that ability to be able to think in a yeah. sort of coherent and, 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 and constructive way about it. I think that's right. And I think this has always been a danger with the way in which climate change has emerged into the contemporary world, you know, in the 1980s, the 1990s, when it first became a major public policy issue. It always had this danger, and actually the whole environmental movement, if we look at the whole environmental movement going back into the last century or even, even further back in time than that, has always had this millenarianism, at least around the fringes, if not in the center, that the world is falling to pieces, that the environment is declining into a state of collapse. Um, that the apocalypse uh, is around the corner. There's always been that tone, that flavor to part of this, uh, and I think it's got worse in recent years. But by elevating climate change to the one thing above everything else that has to be dealt with, it actually short-circuits the necessity, the opportunity, the constructive debates that actually have to be had about crafting sensible policy in the public sphere. It's almost like it's a, yeah, it's a it's a trump card to be played. Well, we haven't got time to debate or to argue about actually what are the multiple goals or the trade-offs here. We haven't got time. We haven't got time. We've only got five years. We've only got six years. This has to mm -hmm. be done in a hurry. Uh, and very often policymaking done in a hurry leads to bad policy. Mm -hmm. So there's... This is very interesting, and, and listening to two of you talk about millenarism. Obviously, I've written about you know, apocalyptic thinking from the perspective of actually of Islamist terrorist groups, but the the parallels, particularly with things like the sovereign citizen movements and things, there's this curious thing happening at the moment where even greater number of people are become obsessed with the fact that the world is about to end, and of course, we fall into this really odd trap, exactly as you said, Mike, about about looking at the future as though it's passive, so predicting, saying when it's going to end and just watching it happen rather than thinking, well, actually nothing in the future is fixed even from today. And I think you've you've mm. picked up in a few of the things you've written about that sort of the, the ridiculousness of a prediction because the minute you make it, it's going to change what happens 
anyways. Yes, I mean, I, I call that line of thinking reductionism or climate reductionism. Mm. It, it's, it's thinking that the future is only about climate change, when mm. actually the future is about everything. Mm. And, and so then I want to bring you on to the future is about everything, because you make some, I think, very compelling arguments about all the things that we're not addressing because we're fixating on this one thing, when actually if we did address them, they would also have beneficial outcomes for the climate. And that's where the geopolitics comes in as well, because we're talking about war and famine and education. And so tell us your lines on that. Yeah. And this is this is getting to the heart of the argument here about how we how we think about the future. And the recognition that climate change cannot be isolated from everything else that's happening in the world, or certainly can't be isolated from the other aspirations that we actually, you know, the global we, we can differentiate the global we. I, I, um, I'm sure in a, in a minute or two, you know, who, who is it that we is talking about here? But there are many other aspirations uh, for public goods and uh, public goals um, that extend well beyond just stopping climate change, particularly just stopping climate change at a particular global temperature threshold. And this is the other thing that I, I think has been very unhelpful is that the, the, the complexities uh, and the multi-dimensionalities of climate change have got compressed and reduced into a single metric of global temperature, whether it was a two-degree target or an aspiration to a 1.5-degree target. Actually, that doesn't even begin to capture why it is we're concerned about climate change in the first place. We're concerned about climate change because of the multiple effects, cascading effects it has on ecosystems, on infrastructures, on public health and well-being, on life opportunities for people who are disenfranchised or vulnerable. Uh, and all of those factors are contingent upon the state of society, the state of the economy, political freedoms, everything else that actually makes up the world that we encounter. Reducing all of that to simply, well, if we can stop climate change at 1.5 degrees, job done. That is a very, very narrow and unhelpful way, it seems to me, of thinking about what we're trying to do when we're trying to deal with climate change. So, I mean, basically, you're you're hitting on a theme of that, that you know actually sort of feeds into a large part of our podcasting, actually, which is this inability, really, of modern societies and modern politics in particular to sort of reflect and think strategically about things going forward. So, what we have, and what you know, you're arguing here, I think, is that in order to sell this rather complex argument to the public, we've had to simplify it to such an extent that it becomes nonsensical, effectively. I mean, it, mm. it, you know, to reduce it, as you say, to that simple metric of a temperature, um, when, you know, as you quite rightly say, you know, the, this, this thing is such a complex set of contingent consequences that might emerge. And of course, you get these sort of ludicrous comments, of course, that people say, oh, well, you know, people are talking about temperature rises, but then, you know, why is it getting colder or something in, in Britain? Mm. I mean, you know, these sort of like idiotic... It offers, an easy, it offers an easy target for, for people to debunk the whole thing. Yes, you know? exactly. I mean, it, it, it sort of makes you vulnerable, doesn't it? I mean, it, 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 because you're, you're not actually dealing with it or explaining it in a way that's... Clearly, it's a complex argument, but we do have to take the time and the effort to, uh, I, I think, explain that. And one of the things that I think, uh, I mean, I don't know, you know, I'll, I'll throw this out as a question for you in a way, or a, or, or a comment, is also the way in which the fourth estate deals with it, which also tends to sort of simplify it. You know, the press tends to like the more dramatic stories, and as a consequence, diminishes, I think, 
the strength of the argument. I mean, and 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 they have a responsibility. I mean, this is a, a bee in my bonnet, to be honest. But I think there is an element of that where certainly the press themselves are not always the best mediators of the argument. Yes, I th- and I think you know, and this has become even even more the case in in, in recent years. I, I would I would say with the rise of social media and the fragmentation of media uh, uh, media networks uh, media interactions that this has contributed very significantly to this polarizing effect around climate change. It was always there, but, but it's become much more exaggerated in the last five or seven years. I would say, and this certainly contributed to this rise of doomism, this this narrative that we only have a certain number of years left, and of course. The other thing about this is that you know the impacts of extreme weather are always dramatic. Mm. They're lurid. And what has, has happened, again, over the last 10 or 15 years, is that with the rise of a, a much stronger visual culture, a visual media culture, through iPhone technologies, everything becomes visualized in real time. And so the appearance is that the entire world's weather now appears on your screen in front of you. In a snapshot, so the fact that there are uh, heat waves here and floods there and droughts somewhere else and hurricanes here, it all becomes this compression of space, mm. and it, it feeds the sense that actually the world's weather is going crazy, because you're now experiencing the entire world's weather on your smartphone in front of you. So I think that, that this is the part of the psychology of this that's going mm. on. Yes, the climate is changing. There's no question. I'm not denying that for a second. Of course, climate is changing. Humans are implicated in that mm, change. Mm. But h- how we experience that, in my view, has been exaggerated by this rise of this new um, uh, visual culture that that we, and, and particularly young people here again. And, and this is back to you know the psychology of this, particularly for for teenagers and young people, which has given rise in the last five or seven years to this new um, phrase, eco anxiety or climate anxiety. And I see it in the students I teach in Cambridge, uh, that, that I've got students coming to me saying that they don't see the point of the future. There is no future. You know, if one of my students said to me, you know, you study climate change, you're concerned about climate change. Why are you twiddling your thumbs teaching us human geography here at Cambridge rather than actually trying to stop climate change happening? What's the point? And that this, this sense that the future has been taken away from young people. I think is a is a very undesirable side effect of of this whole doomist apocalyptic narrative. Can I be the devil's advocate if we're talking <laughs> about the apocalypse, um, which we are? Ali, I got your point about global temperature being a sort of simplified way of selling it to the public as something we can understand, but we need somehow globally to have targets to incentivize countries to reduce the most polluting behaviour and to incentivise car manufacturers to stop making diesel ones and start making electric batteries and all of those things. And in that sort of trying, you know, trying to manage the bag of cats that are the leaders of the world, don't we need a simple framework which says uh, global temperature this, net zero that, in order basically to give them something that they can relate to each other to talk about. Is that the purpose Mm. of it? Uh, Does it serve that purpose? Is it actually useless for that purpose? And I know, Mike, you're not particularly happy with net zero as a concept either. So if I can throw that into the mix of questions, what would be a better way to talk about it all? 
I mean, you know, targets, yes. I mean, targets are everywhere. And of course, public policy needs targets. I guess my point would be, A, we need multiple targets. The danger is elevating one target above everything else. That's one of the things I'm tackling. Climate change isn't everything. Stopping climate change at 1.5 isn't everything. Securing net zero by 2030, 40 or 50 isn't everything. We need multiple targets. And having multiple targets in play actually gives space for politics to do its work. Because politics is recognizing the fact that we have got different beliefs, we've got different value systems, we've got different goals, we've got different aspirations, we've got different preferences. Politics exists in any social formation, whether it's a family of you know parents and children or whether it's United Nations. Politics exists in order to deal with those conflicting values and goals. So first of all, we need to have multiple targets rather than simply reducing politics of the future to one single target. The second thing I'd say is be careful about how you craft those numerical targets. In other words, you want the target to be, if you like, as close to the point of traction that a policy measure has as possible. And global temperature is the very worst uh, target, therefore, because you can't craft a policy to control global temperature. The the analogy I often use is with uh, public health policy. So my understanding of the way in which public health policy goes is that we don't set out on a target as a nation that over the next 10 years, we're going to increase life expectancy by two years. What we actually do is we set much more limited and specific targets around, for example, treatment regimes of particular illnesses or aiming to invest in certain number of facilities for public health in the community. We, we fragment the overall goal of public health into multiple targets, but we don't actually say, well, we have to increase life expectancy by two years in the next five, 10 or 15 years because that target is far too far away from the actual points where specific policies have real traction on the ground with health providers or medical research or um, public uh, health media campaigns or whatever. So, Can I interrupt you there? Because I think you've just said something that chimes very much with, with the way I've been thinking about existential risk, which again, is, this, mm. is the same problem, is that existential risk is not a normal risk because it's a risk that you never want to happen because that would be the end of the world or you know the end of whatever it is that exists. And so I totally agree with you that the problem is we're using the risk language to talk about something not that we want to manage and mitigate, that, but that we want to not have happen. And actually the fact of that is preventing us from thinking, actually, that's not a risk. It's just something that must never happen. So what we mm. need to do is develop a plan to make sure that it never happens. And then the risks that we track are the risks to the delivery of the plan rather than the abstract Mm. risk, which is pointless because we're all just staring at a bad thing. And I think that's what you're talking about, isn't it? I think, I think, yeah, I think that that, that's right. I think that holds exactly so. So we're looking not not to craft policies that will hit a target of 1.5 degrees and keep us below that, but Policies that will make a difference to the many, many factors that contribute to why that target is a problem for us. So policies around climate change, and this is also where I quite often go in the direction of the sustainable development goals, 
because here we actually have got multiple goals in play. You know, 17 headlines, I mean, there are 169 individual ones, but just taking the 17 headlines and those 17 SDGs, again, it, it seems to me they allow politics to do its job more freely without this artificial sense that there's only five or six more years in order to secure them. And it gives recognition to the necessity of trade-offs, you know, poverty reduction, uh, improved access to health, improved access to uh, sanitation services, uh, you know, female education in particular. You know, these things cannot all be delivered at the same time by the same date. One has to recognize there are different priorities and therefore different jurisdictions, different countries, different nations, different um, networks of political interests will therefore move around that space in different ways, forming different coalitions, advocating for particular policies. And if you see politics as a business of dealing with mess, which is how I see politics, I mean, society is a mess, the world is a mess, politics is a mess, actually creating the nature of the problems we're trying to tackle in a way that can be done in a messy way, rather than a sort of pure optimization type of a way seems to me much more commensurate with the nature of the world that we experience. Are you saying that by focusing on the sustainable development goals, we will also make progress towards our goals on climate change, whatever they are? Yes, I would say that. Uh, And I think it's back to my point made before that really why we're concerned about climate change isn't because the global temperature hits 1.4, 1.8, 2.3, 2.7. It's not as though something magic or dysfunctional or existential occurs once a particular global temperature is hit. What we're concerned about with a changing climate is that the risks of dangerous weather impact particular communities, particular places, particular species, particular infrastructures, in particular places, at particular times, in particular ways. And we don't want those risks to run out of control. But it's it's what's happening to particular people and places that matters to us. So if one can hit, for example, the educational goals uh, in the SDG, you've actually then created societies that are more literate, that are more educated, that are more technically advanced, that, that are able to actually implement uh, whether management strategies or new technologies that can mitigate against the worst excesses of extreme weather, for example. Are you also creating greater polluters, though? Well, that's where the trade-offs come in. So you've got to trade that goal against, well, how do you provide these additional energy services uh, or economic growth that often goes hand-in-hand with increased education or increased sanitation? Where does that energy come from? We want that to come from clean energy sources. So then you've got the clean energy SDG in play as well. In other words, one wants to move towards a world that gives greater energy services to the 2 billion or 3 billion people who don't have access to those. But you want to do it in a way that moves us away incrementally from fossil fuel uh, provision. So here again, you've got balance, you've got trade-off. You can't just elevate one of these goals unilaterally and decisively against the others. And having those multiple goals means that you can find different coalitions of actors who can advance particular goals in particular places. And again, it's what sometimes um, I use this idea of clumsy solutions uh, to separate this from the idea of optimization. 
Um, and too much of climate policy, I think, is driven by optimization. It's driven by economic models. It's driven by climate models based on mathematics. And you can do wonderful things with mathematics to optimize. But actually, that isn't the way in which the world operates. The world is a clumsy place. And therefore, we need solutions that match the clumsiness of the world that we encounter. So you need, you need, first of all, a more holistic approach, but you also need a more agile approach. And I think in, in, in both cases, what you're, you're saying is that our approaches have been either too, as you say, reductionist, but also uh, fixed, mm. almost fixated on particular issues. So that, you know, we may be doing damage in other areas yeah. inadvertently. Yeah, I think that's right. Agility, uh, holistic, and actually seeing... You know, I mean, a good illustration of if we just focus on the energy side of things here, the energy transition, this idea of trying to move away from fossil. So there's been an argument, you know, it's been rumbling along for a long time about, well, do we have all the technologies in place currently to be able to transition the world away from oil, coal and gas? So whether it's, you know, wind, solar, hydrogen, biomass, put nuclear in if you want, all the nuclear gets controversial for some people. Do we have those technologies in place? And some people say, yeah, well, we absolutely do. It's, it's just a lack of political will, or it's the incumbent power of the fossil industry that's holding everyone back. You, you can fall either way in that argument. I mean, I, I don't think we necessarily do have all the technologies currently in place. But my point is, even if we did, to move the world away from fossil to renewables, uh, increasingly, of course, around electrification and battery-powered technologies, what one comes up against is the brutal reality that these technologies require rare earth minerals. And as soon as you begin to actually do the numbers around this and the geopolitics, of the, where are these rare earth minerals? Who controls them? How large are the resources? How quickly can they be extracted and then mobilized? Who's actually making the profit from transitioning from oil, coal, and gas to rare earth minerals? you actually begin to realize that this is not a straightforward transition. Or at least let's put it differently, that if one, one transits away from a global capitalist economy held in hot by the, the nasty owners of oil and gas, one moves into another world, actually, in which there are equal uh, powerful agents and interests who actually control access to these essential resources that are going to be necessary for an energy transition. And if you only think, well, what, ma what matters here is we just need to get rid of the oil and gas and replace it with solar, wind, battery technology. And if you don't pay attention to these underlying power dynamics, uh, incumbent political powers who've got access to rare earth, and, and actually China, of course, are in a prime position in order to control and to manipulate markets around rare earth minerals, you haven't done justice to the complexities of an energy transition. We had a very interesting conversation a, a few weeks ago now with a man called Richard Williams, who's in the mining industry, who was explaining this in a lot of detail. And basically the, the problem that, I don't know, the industrialised nations of the West have, which is that it's very difficult to finance a 20-year mining project in entirely speculatively, where it's a lot easier if you're the Chinese to do that because the state provides the, the capital for it. And that brings me on to a question about, well, it's putting the geopolitics back into the problem, really, about, about conflict and competition. Because Ali, in another one of our conversations, we were talking about that relationship between China and Iran and Saudi Arabia, which is essentially a part of which is about the continuation of the supply of fossil fuels to China. 
and the fragmentation of the world into these blocks of alliances, uh, which the war in Ukraine caused by Russia is accelerating in a way, is another part of this problem, isn't it? Which I mean, you can't divorce choices individual countries are making about provision of their own energy supply and who they want to ally with and who they are set against from the issues that you're raising mm. there, Mike. I mean, is there something more we should be thinking about, about how we stop the whole thing becoming so geopolitically partisan? Well, I'm not sure that one can, and, and but I think this is, again, just facing the reality of the world that we encounter rather than the ideal world that we'd like to be living in. And this is how, you know, climate change looks very different as a political problem or an environmental challenge, depending on where you're actually looking at it from. Whether you're in Moscow or in Jakarta or in Brasilia or in Nairobi, you know, if you're a political advisor to the relevant governments in those countries, you might actually get the same scientific information coming from the United Nations Panel on Climate Change, which is the body that I, I contributed to a while ago. You know, these, these are these big mega reports that come out every seven or eight years, and they distill all the, the latest, you know, science of what's happening, the social science and increasingly some of the economics and uh, technological uh, information. You might get that information similarly, whether you're in Jakarta or Moscow or, or Nairobi. But actually how you use that information in your political jurisdiction in order to secure the particular national uh, objectives and goals and priorities that those nations have will be very, very different. You know, obviously for Putin, you, you know, the most important thing for Putin is not stopping climate change. In equally, you can go to many of the African uh, capital cities and say that actually for many of these political leaders, the number one thing is not stopping climate change. The number one thing may very well be actually increasing our energy consumption in order to provide many of those basic services that we've been talking about with the SDGs. So, you know, the world is it, it's fractured, it's conflictual. And this seems to me just, it cuts across the way in which quite a lot of climate change, particularly emanating from scientists or from climate campaigners, would like it to be framed as though this is a universal problem that needs to be tackled universally. I just don't see that as the world that we actually live in. And we've got to therefore recognize that there are these different political goals, aspirations, and they will conflict with each other in various ways. That, that isn't a council of despair. I just think it's a council of realism. I, I mean, in this sense, you know, I'm a political realist uh, or political pragmatist. And I just think too much of the public debate about climate change, particularly in the West, doesn't recognize that political realism. Do you think... I mean, just to take that, I mean, as a question for you, do you think, therefore, that when we're dealing with some of the, you know, uh, polluters in the developing world, or we say developing world, I mean, I know China considers itself to be part of the developing world, although mm. I, you know, don't know how realistic that is. But uh, if we're, say, dealing with, I mean, are there other things, for instance, that countries like China could do, do you think, if, if you took a much more holistic approach to all this thing? Because, I mean, you know, what, one of the, you know, obviously, one of the, uh, I suppose, the problems we face is precisely this, that, you know, you can have as many demonstrations and campaigning and activism as you want in the West. But actually, obviously, some of the greatest polluters are not here. They're, exactly. you know, in China. But nobody's going to go off and protest in Moscow or Beijing, yeah. or at least when they try to protest in Well, we saw what happens in, uh, in Hong Kong, for, for example. Yes. I mean, I suppose one has to think creatively about this thing. But I mean, I, I suppose, 
to 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 not have a council of despair, but to sort of like maybe end on a on on a, uh, on, a on a slightly more optimistic note is to say that do you think there are approaches we could make to say China and say look you know we understand your industrial needs and whatever and whatever you think is going but there are other things that you can do that can deal with aspects of sustainable development that will contribute ultimately to the, the long term goal. Yeah, I, I think there are, and it's probably back to the phrase agility, uh, but also recognising that there are different coalitions of political actors that can form around different uh, goals or targets. And in the book, I use a couple of examples. You know, there's one. One is around, for example, in India, where you know one of the biggest killers is indoor air pollution from the three or four hundred million. Uh, Indians who still cook on open wood or dung fires uh, in domestic settings. And this is a huge public health burden. And you know, moving away from those very polluting fuels to kerosene or liquid gas would make a huge, huge difference to the public health of many of the um, the least advantaged. Well, here's here's an issue actually that yes, it's not a perfect solution because you're still actually using gas-based fuels. But you actually are improving the health of the nation in, in doing so, uh, and we can we can make similar things actually about about air qualities in uh, in Western cities, and, and actually we've seen the politics of this play out very recently uh, here in the UK with low emission zones. Uh, and again, this just brings home to us. I was wondering that, when that was going to come up. Mike. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. It just, well, it brings home to us the very very difficult public politics of this. So yeah. so on the one hand, low emission. Zones and cities are about improving air quality in cities and therefore, again, reducing uh, public health loads. They're also seen as a good thing because it reduces overall greenhouse gas emissions as well and therefore makes some sort of contribution to climate change. Actually, when it comes down to how citizens react to this, of course, what we've seen is that this is not an easy sell to our publics. But my, my, I suppose my point is that there, as soon as you begin to fragment the overall goal here of trying to stop climate change at 1.5 or 2 degrees, you actually open up spaces that you can find different issues that appeal to different, either different nations or, or different coalitions of actors who can make contributions to progressing particular agendas. It doesn't make it straightforward, mm. but it creates places where you can do coalition formation you can do, you know, media campaigns without this, you know, the, the sort of Damocles hanging over us that you've only got five more years or unless these numbers all add up to net zero by 2030, it's game over. That Having that as the mood music in the background for trying to do the very difficult politics of this is not a very helpful mood music to have in the background. And that's why I'm trying to move away from that type of framing. So, Mike, this is the final question, because I think we want to leave with a message of hope. Uh, so <laughs> <laughs> no, hope is absolutely crucial, because without hope, yes. there's nothing. <laughs> yeah. Without hope, we are doomed. <laughs> Hope's not a plan, though. Because I think what, what you were talking about just then, actually, both about the situation in India and about the ULES problem in the, in the UK, is a question of design and thoughtful design, isn't it? It's a design which makes things instinctive for humans. And the problem with ULES is that it's an imposition of a, a sort of sanction without not only incentives, but without without any thought about, well, what is it these people need to do? And <laughs> how are they going to do it anyway? Because yeah. they're, they're human beings. 
And and that made me think about what you were talking about just then is the the really important thing for us all to understand is that relationship between the very local and the macro. Because I think what you're saying is in order to do the macro, we've got to really understand the very local everywhere in the mm. world mm. and focus the very local on maximizing sorry, I've got to say the right words here, but but on doing the very best we can at a local level to improve the situation regarding, you know, emissions. So is that where the hope comes in? Where does the hope come in for you? Mm. Well, yes, and this has always been a, a tension within the whole climate change movement, if I call it this, is, is between these global stories that come out of climate models and Earth system models that talk about the fate of the planet uh, in quite abstract terms, actually, for most people, very abstract terms. Uh, on, on, so on the one hand, you've got these sort of mega narratives, planetary narratives, but then on the other hand, you've actually got the lived experiences of people in places with their own experiences and trajectories and aspirations. And actually finding ways of um, mobilizing, incentivizing, enabling, um, whether they're, they're situated communities or whether increasingly maybe some of these shared networks that connect between different spaces, finding ways for enabling those political actors to find points of intervention that make sense within their own local communities and experiences, which on a global stage might appear totally minuscule or totally... But that isn't the point. The point is actually you know, enacting change in those small local communities is actually where change on a planetary level actually will end up. So hope is, is actually is around mobilizing local communities Another point of hope has to also be, in my view, around technology. You know, this isn't going to happen. Whatever, you know, idealistic vision you have of a world of the future where climate change isn't presenting us with hazards and dangers that we fear, technology, technological innovation is going to be part of that future world. And so, therefore, actually recognizing the, the, both the power and the potential of innovation but also, and I think, again, it's that word of caution here, is about recognising that you know there needs to be some forms of democratic public oversight about how these technologies actually evolve and develop. Uh, and we, again, we're seeing this with, with, with AI in a, in a slightly you know, different context here. But technology and in innovation, certainly around energy, certainly around new materials that could be much more resilient um, genetic modification, uh, gene editing of crops, for example. These are all technologies that actually can minimize the threats and the dangers and the risks that a changing climate presents us with. Good. Great. <laughs> thank you. Mike, thank you so much for joining us today. And I think that the message that you're presenting, which is a messy world where we need to find different ways to have a conversation, which actually is practical and thoughtful rather than alarmist and angry is a really important one. And I wish you luck with your continued research. Well, I'm definitely going to get your book, Mike. Yes. I can assure you of that. <laughs> Very good. Thank you. Good. Well, it's been interesting to discuss all this with you. Uh, thank you for inviting me onto your programme. It's been great to have you. Thank you very much. Thanks, Mike. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.